You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to the Washington Post Live. I'm Brady Dennis, a national environmental and climate reporter here at The Post. Thanks for joining us today for two conversations about the role of technology in curbing the impacts of climate change. My first guest today is the Executive Secretary of UN Climate Change, Patricia Espinosa. Secretary Espinosa, thank you for joining us today. Hello, Denise. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Good to see you. Um, we saw there in the intro uh, some clips from the most recent IPCC report, which is um, a series of scientific findings about the impacts and the science around climate change. And one of the things that uh, the IPCC has, has told us is that there are technologies that already exist that can help us mitigate the impact of climate change and to slow it uh, you know, from, from getting worse. Would you talk us maybe through some of what those technologies are, some of what they look like, where we're seeing them in the real world, and also about the global challenges with, you know, implementing them on a, a broad scale? Well, um, uh, thank you for, for this opportunity to be able to talk about uh, our agenda, the agenda to address climate change, which continues to be the most important and alarming existential threat for humanity. And, and let me just underline this at the beginning of this uh, conversation. And uh, also thank you for touching on the uh, issue of technology. Uh, which is uh, has been actually uh, in the history of humanity one of the drivers for for change for change in our way of life for change in the way that we use resources uh, sometimes for the good and sometimes not so much for the best of uh, humanity and nature. Um, I, I want to to say uh, currently we are seeing very um, exciting and positive developments in the area of technology. And you have presented some of them in, in your brief video, uh, introductory video, of course, um, technologies for uh, renewable sources of energy have uh, uh, really seen an incredible uh, progress. Uh, their cost has been falling systematically. Uh, this is a sector that has been producing as many, uh, much more uh, good jobs, new jobs, additional jobs throughout the world than uh, many other energy industries. So uh, that's very promising. Uh, we see also uh, amazing developments regarding electric vehicles. Uh, and there, uh, I think uh, the big challenge remains to. Uh, go towards electric vehicles for the um, freight uh, industry, for the heavy, the heavy vehicles, uh, and also to focus and allow countries and especially big cities to focus on electrifying um, a public transportation. Because at the end, we need to really understand that we got, need to go towards um, a, leaving the single use or the individual use of vehicles uh, in favor of uh, collective uh, transportation. Uh, there are also incredible improvements uh, in uh, smart agriculture, a better use of water, 
uh, the way that um, the uh, waste can be recycled, inclu including the possibility of creating energy from uh, waste. Incredible developments as well in the building sector, in the construction sector, um, uh, where we see that uh, much more efficient technologies are, are being deployed. And uh, uh, while um, new uh, buildings continue to be uh, put in place, uh, we really need uh, that all of those new buildings uh, incorporate these very smart and efficient uh, technologies in terms of the use of water, the use of energy, um, the isolation um, uh, technologies. So there's really um, an incredible uh, amount of uh, things happening already. Now I'm talking, I have talked now uh, about the technologies for big industries, but there are also very small uh, innovations that are very useful. And let me just very quickly share with you an example that I uh, really admire very much. And that was one a project, uh, uh, one winner of our uh, process that we call Momentum for Change. And it's um, a, small, a small initiative that uh, provides um, a, a, a portable uh, a light, portable um, a, a electricity um, facilities for uh, health um, uh, installations. And, and that has been just amazing for uh, allowing uh, women in very remote areas, in areas that do not have yet access to energy, uh, to have uh, to deliver their babies in a much more safe uh, environment and also to have uh, the babies, uh, um, you know, ensure uh, the, the best possible uh, conditions uh, to be uh, received way, when they uh, come to the world. So um, uh, I leave it at that. Of course, we can go on for hours. It's a, but, it's a big uh, universe of when you talk about technology. It's in, it's a it's a large um, it's a large universe. And so thanks for some somewhat of an overview there. And I do want to raise along those same lines, as with so much in climate change, as you know. It is a question of scale and a question of uh, finance. And you've talked a lot about finance um, as well. And I'd like to ask you, um, what role does finance, fi climate finance and investment play in being able to get any of those technologies, especially uh, you know, the large scale ones you talked about, uh, you know, off the ground and affordable and deployed all around the world? And, where does that finance need to be um, flowing to? Is it to private industries who are developing these? Is it countries that are in need of this technology that might otherwise not have it? Um, can you just briefly talk about the role of finance and the challenges you know, that come with that? Finance is really uh, in the center of the transformation that the world needs to, needs to undergo, that we all need to see. And um, I, I have to say that uh, so far, we, the international community altogether, has not been performing uh, as we should in terms of finance. Um, the real needs of uh, the transformation that uh, is required 
really has not even uh, uh, been discussed. Um, we have within our process of climate change in the under the United Nations, we have a goal which was that developed countries should mobilize uh, 100 billion annually as of 2020. That goal has not yet been fulfilled. And that is uh, disappointing and it's discouraging for many. And this is, uh, you know, not only the fact that we don't have the finance, but then also the fact that it, 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 um, it really um, um, goes against uh, building trust. And so you start having countries asking themselves, well, you know, if I'm not going to be able to access finance to do that, those transformations at home, well, then why should I undertake more responsibility? So it is critical, it is critical. And I would say that finance needs to flow to all different actors. It needs to flow to the, to the governments, to the public sector, but it also needs to flow, especially in developing countries, to private sector. Let me also uh, address one, one issue that is uh, a source of concern, especially to developing countries and uh, the most vulnerable, particularly, which is access to finance, which is, uh, you know, when we are uh, hearing uh, announcements of pledges being made, um, a, a lots of resources being available to be invested, waiting to be invested. And at the same time, what we are seeing is that developing countries are facing enormous difficulties in accessing those funds. Uh, not only is it difficult because it takes a long time, these, these are two long processes, but also uh, the requirements in terms of uh, the technical um, uh, data and uh, the, uh, the way that projects need to be presented are very cumbersome for them. Of course, yeah. if you have a big country with a big um, institutional uh, capacity, then you can do that. Uh, but uh, let me share with you, I was just um, a, a last week in the Maldives and uh, the Minister of uh, of environment uh, shared with me, you know, we are in the department doing international uh, issues uh, on climate and environment. We are only, uh, you know, a handful of people. We cannot do that. It leads me uh, to a similar question. Um, and I'd like to uh, raise a question we have here from our audience. It's from an audience member uh, from Luce in um, Missouri who asks, uh, what regions of the world present the biggest challenge in technology development and sharing? And I would add, and, and why is that? Well, um, you know, uh, it's it's difficult. I mean, we here in UN climate change are really focused on the on the global perspective. So. Um, uh, while we do receive the, uh, the reports from uh, individual countries and then in order to put together that information and present an overall view of where we are and how much progress we have done, uh, we, we really focus on, on the overall picture. But I can assure you that the biggest challenge uh, um, 
in terms of technology, access to technology is in the most vulnerable areas, the most vulnerable areas in the world. And that includes, in many cases, also uh, countries that are not necessarily the poorest ones. Uh, but we do know, we are very, uh, it is very clear that even in, uh, in you know, middle-income countries or some countries that are, are um, a emerging economies, the disparities that we see in those countries are enormous. So uh, the access to technology for a, a, a people in those countries is just um, a, amazing. Um, let me uh, just mention one uh, area or one example of um, lack of access to technology and uh, to solutions. Um, uh, it's um, if you if you look at uh, how many um, homes uh, still do not have access to clean cooking facilities, it is really appalling. It is something that you are not, we should not be uh, allowing uh, happening in the 21st century. So uh, instead of looking at regions, I would say uh, we should look at the most vulnerable uh, areas of society and the most vulnerable countries. Got it. So you and many other people and, uh, you know, it, it ha have spoken about this and it's just, um, clear that in this moment, the world is not currently on track to hit its climate goals. That's um, that's no secret. Um, and and more specifically, to limit temperature change, temperature rise to the levels that, that are designated in the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, hitting the goals of that agreement, and especially the most ambitious ones, uh, no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming this century, uh, Scientists have said we'll take reliance on technology, new technologies, some that are not at scale yet, to 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 reach uh, those goals. My first question is, how confident are you that that humanity will pull off that challenge? Um, some of these technologies are not yet uh, fully developed. And as you look at the climate problem in whole, is there a danger in putting too much hope or um, uh, too much reliance that technology will save us from the climate problem and that we need to be, uh, have, our, have our focus on in, uh, in other areas as well? Well, um, first of all, let me say, uh, I think that technology is really a, a very crucial element for us to be able to overcome uh, this challenge. But technology alone cannot do uh, they um, uh, cannot be the solution. We need plans. We need very clear plans. We need policies. We need uh, structures. We need um, uh, methodologies. We need, uh, you know, it's really a very complex um, a, a group of uh, um, requirements that need to come together so that technology can effectively be deployed and become the solution. So um, that would be my, my first observation. On the, on the first question regarding uh, whether I'm optimist or not, yes, I am optimist. Uh, and I, I think that, um, first of all, we have more knowledge than ever on what the challenges are, what the nature of this challenge, the climate change challenge is. 
And uh, I think that is something that is making uh, us all uh, very well aware. Second, we do have a plan. We know we need to get to the 1.5 degree goal. We know that we need to work on mitigation, on adaptation, on loss and damage. We know what we need to, to do. It's not that we are facing a problem and we don't have an, any idea on what is required to address it. And um, uh, thirdly, uh, you know, humanity has in the past overcome challenges that seemed really insurmountable. And um, so I, I, I would say, you know, why we, would it, this be the time where we uh, are not able to overcome that? Lots of technologies, lots of solutions are already being deployed, are on the ground. Yes, we need uh, to increase the scope and scale. Uh, we need also to invest a lot more in nature, including, you know, in natural carbon sinks, because that's one of the requirements. We need to get some of that carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, and uh, the, the best uh, uh, way, the easiest way, and probably the, the most cost-effective way of doing it is through natural carbon sinks. So, yes, I think so uh, we can make it. So Secretary Espinosa, we just have a couple of more minutes and I would like to uh, wrap up here with a question uh, looking toward the future. One is your own future. You are planning, uh, I understand, to step down from your post this July after a six year stint. I'm wondering what sort of person you think should replace you in this role, what skills they're gonna need, what are the biggest challenges uh, they are gonna face in this important decade uh, to come? So I I think I'll leave it there with that question. Okay. Well, I think um, the, this is uh, this is going to be uh, a very a very important uh, new phase for the secretariat. Also, not because I'm leaving, but because the um, uh, in Glasgow we managed to finalize the Paris Agreement rulebook, and uh, now the uh, climate change uh, process is fully fully equipped with all the tools in order to concentrate on implementation. So um, now will be the, one of the biggest challenges for the, uh, my successor uh, will be to, to navigate from being um, a, a process that has started to concentrate on uh, implementation, but that had still a lot to do regarding negotiation towards uh, a process that can uh, really make an an important contribution in the implementation. And that does not mean that the intergovernmental process will not be needed anymore, because somebody needs to really um, keep track of the progress and and what is happening. And uh, I don't think the UNFCCC should become an implementing agency on the ground with projects. There are so many implementing agencies. So the role I see for the secretariat is more as a facilitator, as a convener, as a, you know, somebody that, uh, an entity that brings together the needs and the solutions. And you would say in one line, what would your advice be to your successor? <laughs> Literally in one line, I think, as we wrap up. Well, I would say, um, you know, be passionate about this. It, it's really worth it. 
So uh, I think we're about out of time. And Secretary Espinosa, thank you so much for taking time to join us here today. Thank you. I'll be back in just a few minutes with my next guest, Susan Stone of Ubiquitous Energy. Stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post Newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, I'm Ruth Umo, Leadership Editor at Fortune. Today, I'll be joined by Christopher Wellis, Director of Sustainability at AWS, to discuss the hugely critical role tech plays in driving a more sustainable future. Welcome, Christopher. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Ruth. Absolutely. Well, Christopher, let's start by level setting. What are some sustainability challenges that enterprise companies are facing today? Yes. Well, increasingly, Ruth, we're really seeing our customers in every industry, in every region of the world, telling us that sustainability is a top priority for them. It matters not just to them, but to their customers, their employees, and to the communities in which they operate. And in many cases, issues like climate change have started in impacting their own operations, whether it be related to extreme weather patterns, disruption of supply chains, or energy-related issues. So it's really unusual now when we talk to our enterprise customers for them not to want to talk to, talk to us about sustainability, not only because they wanna be good corporate citizens, but also because sustainability and efficiency really go hand to hand, whether it's reducing water and energy consumption, for example, or reducing costs. These are all really issues that are top of mind for our customers. And they're really looking to us to help them to reach their sustainability goals because they know that Amazon is aggressively driving toward our own net zero carbon future. And we're learning a lot on this journey that we're happy to share with our customers. You note that companies are at an inflection point. How then can technology make a positive impact on sustainability? Yes, yeah, so there's a couple of different ways that we're engaging with our customers on the topic of sustainability. The low hanging fruit is really the opportunity that the cloud offers our customers. We know when they migrate from an on-prem environment to the AWS cloud, there are huge efficiency gains primarily based upon our economies of scale. For instance, depending upon where they are in the world, improvements from an efficiency standpoint are anywhere between 3.6 and five times improvement over an on-prem environment. And that has the impact of reducing their carbon footprint by greater than 80%. That will drive closer to 96% as we work toward achieving our 100% renewable energy target, which we're on track to meet five years ahead of time by 2025. Now, when you go beyond just that migration opportunity, the other opportunity is really the power that our services and that the cloud offers our customers around innovation. There are an example like, for instance, GE Renewable Energy, their use of our cloud technology to create digital twins related to their wind turbines, which they're then able to optimize uh, for production capacity once they're built and operating and in, in, in the ground. Another example is how we're doing work with the agricultural industry. CropX is a cool company that we're working with that uses thousands of sensors across over 1,200 farmers, which results in improving water savings by up to 40% 
and increasing crop yields by up to 10%. Another example is how we're working with Volkswagen. We've helped them to create the Volkswagen Industrial Cloud, which improves production efficiencies and provides real-time status and overall equipment effectiveness on their cylinder production line. We're able to approve efficiencies by up to 30% for Volkswagen. So it's really this combination of digital transformation and sustainability-related transformation, and the lines are increasing and becoming blurred. And really at the core of both is the need for data and data insights. That drives both what our customers are seeking to do from a digital transformation perspective, as well as helping them to become more sustainable. Well, that's quite the range of industries and, and use cases. And in light of that, uh, and Christopher, as I'm sure you already know, many companies have published ambitious sustainability goals, uh, sustainability targets. As we look to the future, what excites you about sustainability and, and what do you think is achievable for companies? Well, I think we really are beginning to understand the challenges that things like climate change present, not just to us and our suppliers, but our customers as well. Uh, and we see the ability to rapidly reinvent around things like energy constraints, material constraints. And what excites me is the ability and insights that customers are now able to gain through the use of technology to do things like improve circularity, improve energy efficiency, uh, and also how they're consuming energy. There are new data, new tools at their disposal, new technologies like machine learning that help around things like optimization related to consumption. And I think these tools combined with the innovation excellence that our, many of our customers have are gonna help create a sustainable future for us all. Yeah, absolutely. Well, to your point, sustain sustainability is a must in today's business environment uh, and companies cannot afford to overlook it. Christopher, thank you for your deep insights. And now back to the Washington Post. Thank you, Ruth. And now back to Washington Post Live. Hello and welcome back. For those just joining, I am Brady Dennis, a national climate and environmental reporter here at the Post. My next guest is the CEO of Ubiquitous Energy, a transparent solar technology company, and the CEO, Susan Stone. Susan, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. Sure. Uh, let's start this way. You are the CEO of a green technology company, and, and we know that for many people, um, at least in our current moment, the barrier for entry for, for, for many consumers on a lot of technology seems to be cost. And so I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about how businesses uh, can and are working to lessen the costs of certain technologies, including, um, you know, the one in which you're involved. Yeah, absolutely. Cost that you're hitting right on the exactly the right point for adoption here. And for technologies like ours, I'll, I'll explain in a second what we do. For technologies like ours, adoption is driven in, in large part by cost. Uh, what we do is we make transparent solar technology. Uh, it's a, a technology that was invented at MIT, uh, and the company was founded almost 10 years ago. So if you can imagine, 10 years ago we were in the lab making tiny little solar cells uh, that you could see through. Uh, and now we make windows that embed that technology right within the window, within that product, so that windows and, and glass facades can make electricity without any compromises, you know, still maintaining all of the beautiful aesthetics and performance that we expect from our architectural glass. 
Now, the key question is, what does it cost to implement this technology? And so for us, from the beginning, we've been committed to mass adoption, and that means making sure that we can deliver at price points that are attractive in the marketplace. So for us, half of the equation is how do we manufacture this product? How do we work with the supply chain that exists so that we can empower existing players in the market, not only to bring us to market and to introduce us to their customers, but also to, to propel our growth throughout the supply chain, helping us learn what materials, components, and manufacturing processes are scalable at mass scale and, and will drive mass adoption. So if that's, that's really the cost component for us, and so that's something that's you know, relatively within our control. The other half for us, uh, I believe, is, is incentives. And you know, we talk about the clean energy tax credit that I think is a, a very popular concept right now. Uh, it's got really broad support. Uh, and that is something that I think can really help technologies like ours as we move from you know, kind of small scale beginning to manufacture into that very, wide scale mass adoption, mass pricing, helping us bridge that gap through incentives can really accelerate the path to mass adoption for folks like us. So I would like to come back to the issue of incentives um, a little a little more later in the interview. I do want to um, ask as we as we think and talk about climate change, we hear a lot about uh, you know focus on the electricity sector and how we generate power, also about transportation and electric vehicles, and these are huge sectors. Also something, you know, folks might not realize is that buildings um, are responsible for roughly 40% of the world's emissions and have really proven to be a bit more difficult problem to solve. How do we cut the emissions that come from, from our buildings? Um, in what ways do you see green technologies helping mitigate uh, emissions that come from buildings? and and where are we in the line of like what more we must do? I mean, certainly we have not figured out a way to make all buildings um, efficient. That's right. And that 40% number, I think that shocks a lot of people because we don't think about our buildings as being big carbon emitters. Uh, and that, that breaks down into roughly 10% from, you know, kind of producing the building materials that go into the buildings. And then you know, 28 to 30 percent is in how we operate those buildings, and and so that's what we we address is you know how we operate those, those buildings. I think you know one of the big challenges in the building sector is that buildings have such longevity. I think I read recently that two thirds of our building stock in 2040 will be buildings that we're constructing today. So you know the first piece of how do we get our buildings to be more efficient is build urgently with a mind towards sustainable building, towards greener and more efficient buildings, and, and implement these new technologies as soon as they come online. Uh, there is no time to waste, and, and really the problem is urgent because once a building is constructed and, and you know essentially completed, most of the materials and technology that are in, embedded in that building will be there for decades. So I think that that presents a challenge in that we have a lot of existing building stock that we need to transform. Uh, but it also is, is a massive opportunity. And so one of the ways I like to think about the opportunity is the scale here. Uh, for us, we're in architectural glass, so that's, that's where I'm comfortable understanding the scale. Uh, there are 20 billion square feet of glass installed in architectural settings around the world every year. 
So if you lay that end to end, that's 100 times around the globe every single year. Uh, and right now, that glass is, is pretty passive. What it does for us is generally it insulates the building. Everybody knows about these double-paned insulated glass units these days. Uh, that's, that's what we do to insulate the building when we're building with glass. And they typically reject solar heat. Uh, and so that is standard. Almost every building, almost every piece of window glass you can buy today has those two you know, kind of basic technologies embedded in them. Uh, if we can transform that into active electricity generating glass and not change anything else, not change how our buildings look, feel, how they, you know, how they perform for us as users, we can offset almost 10% of global carbon emissions by just generating electricity at the building and not changing anything else. Uh, and so for me, that that's exciting. And, and really, uh, if we can get to mass adoption for there are plenty of technologies like that, if we can get to mass adoption and really create urgency for building owners to, to build with these new technologies and um, make sure they're implemented and that that's a big focus for their new building design, we can turn that building stock over and we can make sure that that two thirds of our building stock we're building today uh, is future-proof and is going to work for us into the future. Uh, you talked about growing and, and how uh, these technologies must grow uh, in, in order for us to have uh, more of a global impact. I wonder, um, it, it, tell us a bit about what, su what support you think, uh, and this goes back to the incentive question, what support do companies like yours need in order to be able to scale up to the point where it makes a more substantial dent and has a bigger footprint? Um, and is that uh, just incentives for the manufacturers and creators of these technologies? Is it incentives uh, for the consumers who may buy them? Like what what would uh, supercharge uh, the power of technology to, to do more and do more quickly? Yeah, well, they're all helpful. Uh, and, and we're a manufacturing company. We're uh, fortunately or unfortunately, we make a physical product. And so that requires building manufacturing facilities around the world uh, and, and getting our technology produced and out into the market. So for, for newer technologies like ours, and I would argue to just increase scale uh, even from existing technologies, uh, incentives across the board are valuable. I think consumer incentives, uh, for me, are particularly valuable because they supercharge that demand. They offset you know, potential price increases for implementing the new technology. They can also help, uh, you know, really offset the risk profile. It, it is risky to embed new technology into your building, uh, and it feels risky, and so incentives can help offset that feeling as well. Uh, so I, I love the consumer side uh, incentives. On the manufacturing and, you know, further upstream incentives, those are really valuable too. I think Patricia said, I took a note because I thought it was so well said, she said, finance is at the center of the transformation here. And uh, we absolutely believe that to be true. And I think incentive and public sector support really help private dollars flow into the companies that are being supported because it's just that added layer of, of extra uh, extra juice and extra growth that uh, public sector incentives can inform, uh, can implement for us. Uh, you know, we use the term green technology and there's other phrases. It, it is a vast world. And I just wonder, since you uh, live and work in this world, uh, what other products uh, are you enthusiastic about that could actually have the potential to move the needle on things like climate change and, and helping um, lower emissions? Like what, 
when you look around your industry, what, what excites you? Oh gosh, there's so much that excites me. Um, I'm, I'm so interested in storage right now. I think uh, there's so many new developments in battery technology that are going to, again, be just transformational for our renewable energy industry. I'm a, a very big believer in sharing our electricity generation between utility scale at the grid and distributed energy at a building or even at your device. And so storage is the key to that. You want your electricity to be available to you whenever you need it. And so, you know, these new battery technologies are so exciting. I just, I love following what's happening there. It's pretty transformational. Uh, within the, the you know, because building sector, I get excited about uh, other embedded technologies. So I, I love solar roofs. I think Tesla has a beautiful, beautiful solar roof. Uh, there's a company, a GAF, that's making uh, solar roof tiles that can be installed just like roof tiles. And I think you can nail through them. That's also really exciting to me. Um, and on a, on a personal level, I'm dying to get uh, a geothermal heat pump. And so those are exciting to me too, you know, helping homeowners move off of kind of fossil fuel furnaces and, and move to renewable energy for, for their HVAC systems in their home. Uh, those are exciting too, and, and they're here. That technology is available. Um, I grew up in Maryland and it wasn't a, a, a geothermal heat pump, but we had a heat pump when I was a kid. And uh, so these technologies are not necessarily new. We just need to implement them. So you have uh, an investing background yourself, and I just want to ask you now as a CEO of a, of a company working on these issues, obviously the bulk of funding comes from, from private industry, uh, but I also am curious what role you think the government has to play here um, in incentivizing these new technologies. Is there a role? What should that role be? What more could and should the government be doing? Um, I mean, this is a question for around the world. I'm thinking, you know, here in our, in our country mostly. Well, here in our country, I think I mentioned the clean energy tax credit earlier, and I think that's one of the, the programs that really makes me so hopeful, in part because I think it would be a real driver for our industry, but more because it has such broad support. Uh, I think polling is showing there's 90% support right now for clean energy, clean energy tax credits and for, for public sector support here. Uh, and that in itself makes me so hopeful. Uh, I heard you ask uh, Patricia if if technology was going to save us, and and I loved her answer because I I agree with it that technology is a tool for us to save ourselves, uh, and so I, public sector support and government support through those incentive programs is, is immense. Um, I also think there's a, a, a terrific loan program from the Department of Energy that that you know we're hopeful that we'll be able to, to take advantage of that also helps. Uh, helps companies like ours build manufacturing facilities. I think I do come from a finance background. I've, I've spent a lot of time with venture capital investors and investment bankers in my day. And uh, there has been in the past an allergy to investing in, in hard assets and investing in manufacturing. And I'm really seeing that ease. Um, and I think programs like the Department of Energy's loan program that Jigger Shaw manages, um, those can also help help get comfort around private capital so that they know that the government's there with them hand in hand in supporting these companies. I think people would be interested in hearing a little bit about uh, what it is like in this industry these days. And by that, I mean, um, how competitive is it for us, for the pool of money, you know, when you're looking for investors in, in these technologies, are most companies um, supportive of each other in, in the shared mission of, you know, curbing the effects of climate change? Is it, in what ways is it competitive as far as 
uh, you know, trying to 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 fund your own company and trying to grow that at scale. And I just wonder if you could talk about how the industry works uh, with each other uh, or not. But you know, how how is that working? As everyone, um, it is obviously a business, but but does have this this shared larger goal. Yeah, hugely collaborative. I think that's that's really what I've experienced here. Uh, and and we really live in two industries. We live in you know kind of renewable energy, climate technology. Uh, and on the other hand, we live in building products, architectural glass windows, because that's that's the channel that our products go into. Uh, and and across both, I would say, uh, tons of support, a lot of collaboration. And I think in particular with climate tech folks, uh, there is a real feeling that we're in this together. It, it's an, an urgent problem. It's an all hands on deck moment. And I, is there competition for dollars? I, I would say sure, but it's a very, very light competition. I, I have never found somebody, I've yet to encounter, I should say, someone uh, at a, another company who wasn't willing to make an introduction, to be supportive, uh, to have a discussion about a potential partnership. Uh, and I think that is is also indicative of this moment in time and, and really the urgency of the problem. Uh, you have a lot of people coming together that recognize that there's no one technology or one company that's going to solve this problem. And uh, many of the, the technologies that we're bringing online go into highly choreographed industries where we need to be working together. We need to be working with existing industry and you know, kind of cutthroat competition for dollars uh, doesn't sync with, with that mentality or the necessity to, to bring those network effects to our market. So I think we just have a brief uh, minute or so here. And I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, I'm struck that we're sitting here today having this conversation with a lot of open-ended uh, unknown questions. Can we can we grow, uh, you know, businesses like yours and others, the technologies that they are, um, that they are uh, producing? Uh, can we do it at a global scale? Um, all these All these sort of unknowns in this moment. And I wonder, as you look ahead, how do you think this conversation we're having would sound or feel different uh, a decade from now or two decades from now, three decades from now? Um, what what do you think we would be talking about then and what do you think this industry will look like um, in the decades ahead? Well, I hope we, we reach a moment, I don't know how many decades away we are from it, but I hope we reach a moment where we don't talk about climate tech, we just, climate tech is technology and, and that's just our, our baseline orientation is, that, that everything that we do needs to be with an eye towards protecting our planet and to you know, making our, our energy more renewable and our buildings more efficient. Uh, and so that's my, my sincere hope is that we're not here talking about this uh, with the same urgency and that we're looking back uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I don't know about congratulating ourselves, but I, I hope that we're looking back and saying we rose to the occasion. Uh, and I think, you know, as he, we heard, you know, Patricia was talking about how hopeful uh, she is about humanity and that we've, you know, we've been through real challenges before. And, and I also believe that to be true. And so that's my sincere hope is that we're looking back and saying, we came together here, we, we met the problem with urgency and we solved it together collectively. And I think we have a real opportunity to do that. So let's check in, let's check in in 10 years and see what we're calling this, uh, this industry. I bet it's not climate tech. <laughs> well, with that, I think we're just about out of time. Susan Stone, thank you so much for joining me here today. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.